Hi, my name is Aisha Zengu. And I'm Alex Rodriguez, and welcome back to another episode of Bone Group Banter. As always, we're here to discuss, debate, and share all things musculoskeletal. So, in this podcast, we've spoken um, about clinical trials, um, about this cohort, that study. So, we thought we would take a moment to discuss what these actually are and what's involved in them. Exactly. And to help us through this, we have a special guest with us today on, on Bone Group Banter. Kat Shaw Laurenti, who is a clinical trials coordinator, sounds very fancy, Kat, <laughs> at Monash University. So welcome, Kat. Thank you. Um, could you first start off with um, telling our listeners about what your professional background is and what you're currently involved in? Just a bit of a job description kind of thing. Absolutely. So I uh, came to research through the biomedical degree at Melbourne and then I did an honours degree. Um, I started a PhD and then converted it to a master's um, and then um, here I am. I've actually had the same supervisor um, all the way through that. (laughs) He can't get rid of me. (laughs) Maybe he likes you very much. (laughs) I hope so. Um, And um, so some people come to my role, clinical trials coordinator, through nursing or physiotherapy, um, and, you know, they've identified gaps in their, um, the treatment they're giving patients or um, a particularly vulnerable patient group or something like that, and, and they've gone into research after a clinical degree. But no, I've come straight out of uni and um, I guess and this research. is... And research. This is, uh, this is my passion, yeah. And so what do you think are the key sort of skills or attributes that you need to, to be in your, your sort of job? What are the things that you actually do on a daily basis? Cats <laughs> come prepared. <laughs> <Cats come prepare. laughs> <clears throat> um, so I'd say a science background is often essential. A research higher degree, like, for example, um, a PhD, a master's, or, um, or something else that focuses quite deeply um, on research is um, highly sought after and as I said nursing or allied health um, uh, uh, you know clinical practice as well I think you've got to be manageable but still approachable you don't want to scare patients off when you're trying to recruit them into a study you have to be really good at computers as well there's a lot of software that um, pharmaceutical sponsors um, for example use and, and get you to use I'll come back to them in a minute Um, You have to have great attention to detail and really at the end of the day, you've got to be interested in the research area that you've chosen to work in. (laughs) If you're not, you probably won't be that successful. You mentioned uh, just then about recruit a patient into a study. It sounds very formalised. I'm assuming you don't just go and ask people on the street, oh, hey, we're looking at this, you want to come along? And what's sort of involved in that process? Well, um, (laughs) Look, you have, to, uh, you have to stick pretty closely to the protocol, whatever you've got approved by the ethics board at um, your hospital or your um, research institution. Um, you've got to stick with that. So if you've said that you'll recruit hospital patients from Ward A, that's all you can do. <laughs> well, just on that ethics, um, I know, just because I'm a researcher, that a lot of work goes into ethics, but could you perhaps explain to our, our listeners What's actually involved in ethics in terms of a research study? We've all taken Panadol and ibuprofen and these have all gone through ethics um, approval. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. So um, I guess before explaining that, 
I'd probably have to explain the relationship between pharmaceutical sponsors, the companies that develop the drugs um, that we take today or perhaps that don't make it to the market, and and us here at the at, at Monash. So um, they're in it for the big bucks, basically. <laughs> they're squillion-dollar sort of companies, um, and they often produce the protocols that we use in clinical trials. So they will describe... Um, the tests that we have to do and the time frames in which we have to do them and um, and they will often you know provide or um, or link us in with people who can supply the trial medication or that sort of thing as well um, and it's actually only one in about 10,000 drugs from initiation um, that actually make it through to the government approval stage. So, so drugs high, can't... High failure rate. Very then. high failure rate. So they're really in it... Um, they're really hoping to find that one in the 10,000. Yeah. Um, but um, that just goes to show how lucrative that one mm. can be because mm. these companies make, um, a make a lot of money. <laughs> but getting back to the question yeah. of ethics, what, what does that actually mean? Do they sit in a big building somewhere and say, you're allowed to do that but not allowed to do that? What... What is it and how do we, how do we get their, their all-important approval? So we take a, uh, a pharmaceutical sponsor protocol and um, we develop um, other standards and assess the feasibility, sorry, feasibility for our site and we will then submit an application to ethics that um, will likely include um, the safety of the medication. You know, if it's something um, relatively standard that's even available over the counter, like vitamin D or, um, or calcium or something like that, then um, there's not likely to be a great safety risk associated with that unless it's like a high dose or something like that. What about if it's a, an experimental treatment? What things would they consider? Yeah, great question. So um, you actually have to get new medications uh, approved by government authorities. So there's a special um, sort of component of the ethics application um, applicable for those scenarios. Yeah, and basically ethics, the ethics committee is there to ensure that um, the participants that are involved in the study are kept safe. Right? Yeah, that's right. And so who, who sits on the committee? Like, who, who are they all just a decision? bunch of doctors or students? Like, who sits on the committee? Uh, great question and all of the above. So <laughs> these ethics committees are um, always made up of some medical professionals who are, um, uh, you know, have a lot of expertise in the area that they're reviewing. Uh, there are also um, lay, you know, just general, your average... Um, garden variety Garden person. variety person, <laughs> that's right, with uh, no research or medical background. And there are, of course, also the ethics and governance uh, professionals uh, from, um, well, for example, for us, from Monash Health. Uh, and they're there to really make sure that we're following the right procedures and we're meeting the right ethical standards so you mentioned that on these committees there are lay or gun variety people. I mean, they're not experts in research and the effects of this drug and that drug and, and human physiology. So what do they bring to these committees? Well, they're uh, really there to um, keep the ethics committees on their toes, really, <laughs> to make sure they're doing the right thing by the community um, and to make sure that it's sort of a, a feasible and realistic kind of um, uh, pro project. Mm. 
Um, okay, so now that we've established um, ethics and the committee and what have you, um, could you tell us, we always hear the word randomised control trial. Could you tell us what this means and what's involved? Absolutely. At its most basic, it's a research study um, in which you're using an intervention to yep. see an outcome. Well, just explain what's an intervention what do we mean by outcome? All right, so um, an intervention can really be... Um, many things, anything from an antibody to um, any other naturally occurring substance that maybe the body creates that's been modified slightly. Um, it could be a medical device, an implant or a prosthetic, uh, a surgical treatment or a procedure. So basically you're doing something, you're doing something to, that's, to, a, to a person. That's yeah. not done um, currently as part of standard care. Okay. Yeah. And normally in a randomised control trials, or we can refer to them as RCTs, mm -hmm. as that's said more easier, um, there's always a placebo or a control arm. Could you tell our listeners what placebo yeah. means and what yeah. the use of that actually is? Definitely. So a placebo is basically there to, um, to introduce a controlled environment. So it's the baseline um, to which the intervention arm or intervention group is compared. So, for example, um, you might have um, a vitamin D tablet and a tablet that looks exactly like it, even with vitamin D written on it, just the same as the, uh, the real treatment, but it'll be a, uh, a sugar pill or something like that. Um, and you can have a placebo for uh, medical, uh, you know, uh, for tablets or for medical devices as well, mm. um, for surgi surgical treatments or procedures, for example, uh, or even vaccines, for example, you know, injecting with saline or salt solution rather than the actual active treatment. So, so in other words, that's to see if the thing that we're doing to the people can actually be attributed to that thing we're doing to them and not... The and, actual and, treatment. Yeah, not the actual treatment. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So it uh, removes that bias. Mm. If you didn't have the control group or the placebo treatment, um, then you'd be running some pretty dodgy, uh, <laughs> pretty dodgy studies. And of course, we know there are many different types of um, uh, study, you know, research study that we've referred to. We've referred to randomised control studies, but also cohort um, studies. Now, these are very different. Can you explain what a cohort study is and what sort of information we get out of them? Yeah. So a cohort study is one in which you follow people over a period of time. So um, you could be looking at the, the incidence of some type of cancer, for example, or the incidence of a, a particular type of fracture, like a hip fracture. Or an atypical femur Or an atypical femur, femur fracture, <laughs> exactly. Um, over the period of maybe one year or 20 years, some studies actually are intergenerational, like the Framingham, mm. Framingham's heart study. Um, they're into their third generation. They started in the 80s. So um, they so vary mean, quite a lot. Yeah, so intergenerational. So there's the original cohort, all the people they're interested in, mm -hmm. and they've all subsequently had children. And, they, and, and their these, children have had children. And these, and these children are also involved in arc. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, that's very interesting. And so how about observational studies? 
Um, well, observational studies. Um, Quite literally, observational. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So you're not intervening in these studies. You're just observing. You're having a look at um, um, exposures and outcomes rather than your interventions and outcomes. And so what do we mean by exposure? Um, well, this could be, for example, um, smoking and lung cancer. So smoking could be your exposure. Lung cancer could be the outcome you're looking for. And you could look at this in a cohort study. So you could follow up people over time. You'd have smokers and non-smokers, and you'd see who developed lung cancer at the end um, or partway through the study. Uh but there are other types of observational studies. You can have cross-sectional studies in which you're uh, looking at a snapshot in time and you're, um, you're inferring associations between, I'll use this example again, smoking and lung cancer at that point in time. Um, but of course... Rather than looking at the development, it's just at that one time At that point. one time point, that's right, yeah. Um, that's a... Um, a lower sort of category of evidence, I guess, in terms of um, associations and inferring causality. You can't tell um, that smoking causes lung cancer if you're only looking at one time point. Another type of observational studies um, is case-controlled, where you would take... Oh, I'm going to use the same example again, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, where you take... Um, people with lung cancer and people without lung cancer and you look at the their exposure in their history, for example, um, typically in their past, you can actually do this type of study moving forward, but that's a whole other kettle of fish. Um, so in that one, you would look at the, the exposure rate or the rate of smoking in um, non-cancer patients and the, the rate of smoking in patients with lung cancer. And, and trying to attribute that outcome cancer to this particular behaviour. Exactly. So there are a lot of different ways of um, investigating causality and looking at uh, relationships between um, what you're intervening with or your exposure variable and the outcomes. And So I guess you know. what is the main difference then between an RCT, randomised control trial, mm -hmm. and these cohort and observational studies? Mm, excellent question. Well, um, <clears throat> The keywords here are obviously randomized and controlled, so I'll go through them one by one. Randomized, um, this randomization process means that you're removing the bias that could be introduced. Um, so, for example, if I've got a, if I'm a doctor, for example, and I'm trying to do a study in uh, on vitamin D and some sort of patient-related outcome, I could um, randomize my patients and therefore I'm not controlling who gets the treatment and who gets the placebo, or I could be a little bit sneaky and put the patients who I know with low vitamin D uh, into the vitamin D treatment arm and, you know, affect the results by, um, by influencing it. So normally that's why they're randomised and another person who's external to the study is involved with the randomisation, right, to avoid this sneaky things happening. Exactly. So it's often, um, it's often pharmaceutical companies or um, the hospital pharmacy uh, who would have control over this randomisation process. Yeah. It um, just makes, it ensures that everyone's, you know, in line and... Exactly. It's under lock and key. And there's no dodgy business going on. No, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's uh, great, Kat. It's uh, lovely to get your, your experience. 
um, uh, with working in this area, and I think that answers a lot of uh, questions for our um, for our listeners on the different types of of um, of uh, clinical trial out there. And also, it's good to hear about uh, your background as well. If anybody's interested in getting involved in this type of work, one last question I want to know: What do you think are the biggest challenges in uh, modern clinical trials? I think one we've found is particularly problematic or difficult is um, is recruiting participants. So it's um, we rely pretty heavily on people volunteering and self-identifying. And what I mean by that is we might go to present at maybe a sports club or, um, or a church or a, a residential village, facility. Yeah. Exactly. And... Um, and we might present to 20 people at a time and get no one interested in our research. Uh, but then again, on the other hand, we might have one poster up in a waiting room at a health clinic nearby or in the bathroom somewhere. And uh, we might have 10 people interested just from that one poster. So, um, you know, obviously we can't, um, we can't force people to be interested in our research and to firstly want to um, contribute their time uh, to something that's, you know, for, I guess, the greater good. Um, and, yeah, so I guess that's probably the main uh, sort of problem that we face here. Yeah, but just on that, I think it's important for our listeners to realise that, you know, they might be going to be, to be part of a study just to see if they can get some benefit out of for themselves but they should also think of the greater good as well that's how all these medications like these cholesterol lowering drugs and all that kind of stuff that's how they've been so beneficial for a mass population exactly pretty much everything you see at the pharmacy is readily available now and has gone through those government authorities and through um, the ethics committees of um, of their local areas like, nothing is available without those yeah. volunteers. Yeah, so we really value the participants that volunteer their time to be part of our studies. And, and also on the ethics committees. Yeah, well. definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so thanks a lot, Kat. Um, in summary, we've learnt what a clinical trial actually is and all the different types of studies and trials and, and the information that we can learn from these, um, from these studies. Um, we've learned what a clinical trials coordinator does and what sort of professional background is required to, required to, to become one. So thanks again, Kat, for your time. It's been, it's been a great podcast. Thank you both. So that's all we have time for today. Remember to subscribe to our podcast, get in touch with us via Twitter or email um, if you have any questions. So thanks for your time and see you next week. Bye.